As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey y'all, thanks for listening to Killer Queens, or KQ if you're nasty. Welcome to the show where two 90s loving country chicks gab about true crime and tell each other to talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm Torella. And I'm Tori. And we're sisters who have always loved true crime and decided to turn that obsession into a show with a light take on the topic. Diet True Crime, it's all the flavor and fewer calories. Mm. Now, with our show, you'll get true crime, 90s nostalgia, and a few four-letter words sprinkled in. Because I always say that Polly Pockets and True Crime go together like peas and carrots. Be sure to check out our case submission form on our website at killerqueenspodcast.com and follow us on social media and YouTube. Now grab your Surge, your 3D Cool Ranch Doritos, and your kitten surprise, and let's get into the episode. This episode contains discussion of abduction, kidnapping, strangulation, stabbing, murder of children and adults, mutilation of a body, and sexual assault of children and adults. Your discretion is advised. Larry Hall is a murderer, rapist, and suspected serial killer. Authorities believe that Hall was active throughout the 80s and into the early 90s. Hall was arrested in 1994 and eventually confessed to kidnapping 15-year-old Jessica Roach. Although Jessica Roach had been abducted and murdered, Hall didn't confess to murdering her. While waiting for an appeal to his conviction, the FBI heard that Hall might be released and reached out to another prisoner, James Keene, and sent him undercover to try to obtain a confession from Hall. Hey, you guys. Welcome to Killer Queens. If you've never been here before, we want to give you just a little information about how the show is set up and what it's meant to accomplish. If you have been here before, welcome back. You can just use that handy skip ahead feature here if you want to. We want to give a message to friends and family of the victims. We know that there may be someone involved in the case who might listen one day, and we want you to know that our intention is to only bring awareness to this case. And while we do use personal stories in some instances and our own humor in order to tell the story in a way that listeners can relate, we have the utmost respect for victims and their families. We created Killer Queens to be a place where we can have open discussions about cases just like you would with friends. We are not investigators. We use information that is available to the public, such as documentaries, case files, and media coverage. Using this information, we intend to tell the story of what happened in each case that we cover. Now, will you agree with our interpretations or conclusions of each case? Well, heck no. Mm Mm-mm. We each approach cases from different perspectives, life experiences, and beliefs that we already have in place. And sometimes these differences are slight, yet they can be wide enough to cause divide and upset some of those listening. We do our best to present the facts as we find them in our research, but we do bring our own perspectives to the case. We understand that you will too. 
We want you to know that this is a safe space to discuss differences in opinions in a civilized manner. Our style may not be your personal preference, and if that's the case, we know you'll be able to find one of the many other shows out there to tell the story the way you want to hear it. We can be grown-ups about it if you can. Now, if we are your cup of tea and you want even more KQ, you can join our Patreon and get access to our entire catalog of episodes ad-free and access to bonus episodes too. And I'll give you just a little hint if you're an ad skipper, um, but you still want the deals that we have from our sponsors each week, you can scroll down to the show notes and see what coupons we have available for you right down there. But you didn't hear it from us. Mm-mm, mm-mm, that's a pro tip, but I, I'll deny ever sharing it. Right. So all that being said, let's get into the story. Ooh, heavy. Well, heavy. Yep. This is a wild one. Um, Just so you know, too, in case... In case you are one who didn't know this, because I didn't realize this is what I had heard about Blackbird on Apple TV, but I didn't know it was this case. Right. So good. It is really, really good. It's really good. Um, Taryn Egerton. (laughs) Fire. Yes. Hubba. Hubba. Exactly. Um, But we, of course, um, you know, we're not it. Also, it is actually, it's really, um, what I want to say, accurate. Yes, they did a really, really, really good job. I will say too, with the show, which is not what we're covering today, but since we both watched it, I think it's important to talk about it. Um, Because if you do want something in depth on it, that show is really awesome. But Ray Liotta. (sighs) I know. I know. We are losing so many good people, and we won't dwell on this too long, but at the time of recording this, Leslie Jordan just passed away two days ago. It's rough stuff, but I love, I loved Ray Liotta. Yes. Absolutely. And he was great in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that. if you, oh, of course, if you have a chance to watch it, you definitely should. I mean, there was a lot in there, and there is a, I mean, you know, they're obviously going to take some artistic licenses, but there is a lot that's really really accurate. So well done. Yes, absolutely. So Torella, do you want to kick us off here? I do. I do. Thank you. Um, All right. To tell the story of Larry Hall, we feel like the best place to start is going to be with Jessica Roach and Trisha Reitler. Um, However, the very, very, very best place to start in this whole episode is thank you to Mark for writing this. Yes, absolutely. We love you. Almost missed it. Yeah. All right. So Jessica Roche was born in November of 1977 to Terry and Lauren. So Terry is her mother. Lauren is her father. Uh, She grew up in Germantown, Illinois, where she attended high school. By the time she was 15 years old, she was a sophomore who had hopes to become an airline pilot. The Roach family attended the Jehovah's Witness Church in Georgetown and since her death have wished to remain out of the spotlight, completely understandable. 100%. In 2014, the family started to give out a $1,000 college scholarship to the school that Jessica attended to keep her memory alive and in hopes that it will remind children and young adults to always be mindful of their surroundings. Good lesson. Yes. So one day in September of 1993, Jessica decided to go out for a bike ride. She did this all the time. She had just gotten a brand new bike and she was pretty excited to get on it and take a ride around the neighborhood. And they lived in a very rural area. About a half an hour later, 
her sister saw Jessica's bike laying near the road. Now, Jessica's not with it. This is very odd. Yeah. And she immediately knew something is wrong. So she went back home. She told her parents and her father called the police. Jessica had only made it about a quarter of a mile from their home down the one lane country road that they lived on. Now, how many times have we heard this? It's like accidents happen close to home or like, I don't know. This is why I'm terrified to when my children get old enough to just let them like run the neighborhood on their bikes like my husband did when he was little. Right. But I mean, I think it's interesting because there is an argument that some people make that are like, well, I mean, things were different back then and you could do more stuff, but this happened in the 80s and 90s, early Mm -hmm. 90s. So it happens all the time, unfortunately. Well, and I wonder, I mean, I'm sure this information is out there, but I wonder if the reason that like, and I don't even know, I don't even know if it's like a certain percentage more of stuff happens like close to home or whatever. I've just always heard that. But like, I feel like around your house, your guard is down. You know, if you're just like in your front yard, your guard is down. Um, like you're comfortable, you're more comfortable, you know? So you're not like, it's not like you're downtown in a city that you're unfamiliar with. And so you're like, really paying attention. Right. Like around home, you're just like footloose and fancy free. I I will say this, and I understand that it is not at all like what we're talking about. Um, It's it's not the same, but I know. I don't feel that same. I feel great when I'm outside of my house, right? Like I love to sit on my front or my back porch, not my front porch, but my porches, and just enjoy the day in my rocking chairs, just like watching my iPad or reading a book or something. But since it we had we had a cold snap, everything was like, okay, we're done here. Well, then we had it warmed back up. So here come the yellow jackets. Oh. They have been fighting and then landing on me. And I don't feel safe in my own yard. You're right. That's really not the same. I am aware of that. And I already said that. Exactly. It wouldn't be um, an episode of Killer Queens without Tori bringing up some random. Hey, that you just said that that hasn't happened in a while. So that's actually true. It hasn't happened. In a while. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. Right. So they called the cops. Jessica did not come home that night. She wasn't back the next morning. The police, her family, and volunteers all set out in groups to search for Jessica, and unfortunately, they didn't find her. And it would take six weeks for someone to find her body. A farmer in Perrysville, Indiana, close to the Illinois border, was working in one of his fields when he spotted something. Upon closer inspection, it was a body that looked like it had been there for a long period of time at that point. Initially, the authorities had a hard time finding a cause of death due to the condition of the body. They were hindered in solving the case because of a lack of physical evidence as well. But since Jessica's body had been taken across the state lines, now the FBI is involved. Okay, now we're going to talk about Trisha Reitler. Trisha Reitler was 19. She was a freshman at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana in 1993. She was working toward a psychology major with a goal of helping broken families. And on the evening of March 29th, she was working on a term paper. Around 8 p.m., she decided to take a break. She left campus. She walked to a nearby supermarket, which was around a half a mile away. And while she was there, she got soda, a magazine, and then she left going back toward her dorm room in Bowman Hall on campus. 
Trisha never made it back to her room that night. Ugh. Yeah. Center Elementary School in Seabold Pool. Seabold? Sure. Probably one of the two. Yeah. Uh, were located around midway between the supermarket and the campus. And Trisha's bloodstained clothing was located in a field near the elementary school and the pool. There was a basketball court nearby where several people were playing at the time that Trisha went missing. But nobody could really provide any information. They didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything. Nothing stuck out. Countless search parties were formed in days led to weeks, to months, to years. Trisha's body has never been recovered. No arrests have ever been made in her disappearance. So what do Jessica and Trisha have to do with our case today? Well, what links them together is a sideburned piece of sh- named Larry Hall. Thrilla, and you know they're called Burnsides. I know. And he he is very particular about that. And that's exactly why I want to call him sideburns. Yes, just to tick him right off. And here's the thing. I didn't know that they were called Burnsides. I, I, I didn't I, either. I never really knew why they were called sideburns, to be honest with you. But I found out from watching that apparently there was a general named General Burnsides or General Burnside. And oh, he wore... I missed that part of it. I knew that he called them Burnsides, but I was like, I still don't know why. It's because of that general. He had that facial hair. It was like, came down... He had the mustache and this right right on your chin there, just completely bare. So he's like the founder of, so I wonder when it switched to sideburns. None of this matters, but just. No, yeah, just a general wonderment, I guess. Um, I have no idea, but I learned something that day. So sure. Today is result. Exactly. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So let's talk about Larry Hall. Larry Dwayne Hall was born in December of 1962 in Wabash, Indiana. Larry was born mere moments after his twin brother, Gary. When the twins were in the womb, they experienced some issues because it was a monochorionic pregnancy. And that means that they shared and were dependent on a single shared placenta while they were in the womb. So because of this, Gary received more nutrients and had better growth. And Larry would say that while they were in the womb, that Gary fed on him, which resulted in Gary being more athletic throughout their lives. And Larry spent the first few days of his life in the hospital as a result of lack of oxygen due to or during the birth. As they grew up, there was a noticeable difference between the twins. So as Larry mentioned, Gary was more athletic and played sports and as a result was more popular than his brother. But despite their differences, they were best friends growing up and they were best friends on into adulthood. Some people say that Larry displayed signs of destructive behavior and antisocial tendencies very early in life, while 
Many in their small town chalked it up to Larry just being a little odd. Gary said that when they were younger, one night he woke up with Larry standing over him with a huge branch, like he was going to bash him over the head with it. Then Larry just puts it down and they went on like nothing happened. Um, yes. I just feel like, because you you and I shared a room when we were little. We shared a room for a long, like into (laughs) high school almost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we did. And for a long of a lot of that time, early childhood, we shared a bed. That's true. Yep, we sure did. Yeah. Well, or if there was a spider in the room. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, But like, and even if we hadn't shared a room or whatever, like if I'm sleeping, first of all, if I'm sleeping and you're standing over me, that's like creepy anyway. Yeah. But if I'm sleeping and I wake up to find you standing over me with a giant branch and it is very apparent that you, if I had not woken up, you were going to bash me with it, I believe. Something you'd want to talk about? Yeah. And like, um, hey, mom, dad, um, I'm pretty sure Tori was going to kill me um, and I'm not being dramatic. So can we can we do something about that? Can I'm not feeling safe. Like All I've got to say is, thank God you're a heavy sleeper. Well. I'm just saying there were a lot of times that you could have woken up. You didn't. And I'm very grateful for that. Great. Great. So this is, we're going to air all our trauma right now. (laughs) Just kidding. I never, ever did that. But yes, absolutely. I, it's interesting to me. I mean, I know that Gary obviously knew that Larry was a little, as some people in the town would say, maybe a little odd. So I don't know how, how weird that is, but I mean, they, we're bringing it up now. It had to have been a notable experience. But the fact that they were just like, oh, well, that was last night. Today's a new yeah. day. Just Larry being Larry. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I Gary definitely turned a blind eye to a lot of stuff. Sure. A lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. And I understand he didn't want to believe that his brother could do the things that he did. Um, And, you know, I don't know. I wonder, too, if maybe Gary had some guilt about it wasn't his fault he obviously he was a fetus it, yeah. and you know yeah. like he was an unborn child but yeah that he he got more nutrients and you know he was born um without the physical ailments that Larry was you know what I mean like maybe he just yeah. harbored some guilt over that I don't know yeah that's true and like you know I need to make excuses for Larry because of X, Y, Z and all that. It's just, you know, when you don't, I know it's hard to believe that somebody that you love could do some of the things that Larry has done, but like, who does it serve ignoring it and sweeping it under the rug and pretending like it doesn't happen? Like in most situations, your, your brother is not going to go on to be a serial killer I mean, in most situations, it might just be like, okay, well, that's not serving him. And these are like unhealthy behaviors or whatever. But I mean, in this situation, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It's just a lot. But if Gary had told his parents, I don't think they would have done anything. So, I mean, well, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up his parents because let's talk about them for a little bit. So they lived with their mother, Era Bernice Hall and father, Robert Hall. Era was a stay-at-home mom and homemaker while Robert had served in the Navy during World War II. Era was described by neighbors as domineering, and they also said that the household was rather cluttered and basically dysfunctional as the boys grew up. So Robert had a job as a sexton at Falls Cemetery in Wabash, where the family lived. Now, I didn't know what a sexton was, but Mark, being the sweet angel that he is, 
let us know that it is a person who acts as the groundskeeper and general overseer of the cemetery or graveyard. So, yep. But since Robert was a sexton, um, the family was allowed to live in a small house that was near the cemetery grounds. Growing up, Larry and Gary helped their father work in the cemetery, and this usually involved keeping up with like the mowing, digging graves. It's said that the boys started working with their dad as young as 12. Um, I don't, I mean that, if it's what you know, like it doesn't have to be such a macabre, um, scary, spooky thing, I guess, but it is kind of interesting to have to. It's, I feel like it's something that like, if you were like writing a fictional novel or movie or whatever about like a serial killer, you might write that he grew up in a cemetery. Yeah. But Larry actually did. <laughs> yeah. Like, so did he Gary, actually though. did. Yeah. Yes. So did Gary. Exactly. And I don't think there's any secret if you listened before. I don't understand personally why if you have, it doesn't have to be twins all the time, but a set of brothers, set of sisters, whoever, why you got to name them basically the same name, one letter off. Like I don't, I don't personally get it. Earl and Pearl, although they were married. Not they were married, related, yeah. But still, yeah. Um, Timmy and Jimmy? Yeah. Like, it's like, let them have their own identity. Larry and Gary. Like, it just, it does something to me that I might, maybe shouldn't be proud of. I just don't like it. I don't, I don't see, I don't get it, but whatever. Yeah. So money in their household was tight. Of, I mean, you could probably imagine that. Um. And that was made worse when Robert lost his job at the graveyard and the family had to move from the provided home to a one-bedroom shack. Robert was an alcoholic and it started to affect his work. He had been putting the wrong bodies in the wrong graves. Oopsie. That's one of those. It's like if it happens one time, that's still a really big fucking deal. There are some things in life that you, there's no room for error. You know what I mean? Like, if you're a surgeon and you're like, whoops, put the heart where the spleen is, like, that's, you probably, that's that's not really a whoop. You can't really make that whoopsie. No, can't come back from that one. No. Yeah. yeah. Which, I like, don't... I'm assuming that has in some form happened because I've somehow had, like, 90 surgeries at this point in my life. But I remember when I was getting my gallbladder out, the doctor came in and he's like, you know, tell me your name. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, and what are we doing today? I'm like, you're taking my gallbladder out. And like, or like when I had my hernia repaired, they're like, and it's, we're doing a hernia repair. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, and which side is it? I'm like, do you, you know, know this? <laughs> like it made me really nervous, but I think they just yeah. like have to make you confirm it. I don't know. But I was like, this is like information you should already have. Like, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. But so I don't know, maybe, maybe some whoopsies have been done. They call those in uh, medical billing, medical misadventures. Misadventures. Is not the word I would choose, but like if you accidentally like leave a scalpel inside somebody's body. Whoopsie. Adventure. Yeah. That's a misadventure. Yeah. So um, Robert was having some graveyard misadventures. Okay. Series of unfortunate events. Okay. Exactly. So they also said that his alcoholism had grown into an intolerable intolerable problem for his employer. And it was also reported that Robert was violent with the boys after he had been drinking. So as they were growing up, the boys got in trouble here and there. And Larry had been caught setting 
small fires occasionally. And one, at least, you know, on one, on one, goodness gracious, now I'm glitching. On at least one occasion, when they were both 15, the boys were picked up by the police for breaking the windows of a downtown storefront. And then speaking later, the officers who questioned the boys said, quote, it took a long time before we could crack the Hall brothers. They were just kids, but they held up better than hardened criminals, even over something as petty as broken windows. I mean, that doesn't bode well for trying to get information out of a serial killer. Ooh. While in school, Larry was picked on by other students because of the way he talked and the fact that he wet the bed into a later age than most. Larry- We're getting like red flags all over the place. Yes. Talk about the McDonald triad. Yes. Yeah. And that's one thing in the show, the the guy who played him did this very like high-pitched kind of voice. Yeah. Um, And they made a point to reference his voice. So I don't know if that's exactly how he talked, but he was bullied because of the way that he talked. But he was very like, if you watch the show, he's just like, hey, Jimmy, what do you want to do today? It's like a really, I don't know. Well, I actually watched an interview with the actor who played him and Uh they brought up the voice thing. And um, he said that it took a while for him to get the voice down and to kind of keep it. But I mean, he did a great job. So yeah, that would I know that would be really difficult to do. Absolutely, yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Larry was also suspected of other crimes as a teenager, including burglary. And after he graduated high school, he got a job as a janitor, which really, really seemed to be his thing. He was really good at it. He learned all about the chemicals. He learned how to use them, how they reacted with one another, and he excelled at it. While in school, Larry was not a great student except for history class. So he learned to love about different periods throughout history and things that occurred. As a result, after he graduated, he and Gary both became interested in historical reenactments and would often travel to take part in different events throughout Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan areas. Larry was known to drive around in an 80s model work van. And, um, I don't, hmm. So, okay. Cliche, maybe? Um, He's like the poster child for what you think of when you're like, yeah, I mean, there's like, this stereotype is there for a reason. Yes, <laughs> like, and we have a glaring example of why. I mean, when you when somebody says serial killer van, that's basically the van that yeah. you're, I mean, whatever he, you're thinking of, that's it. He definitely painted over it and changed it to grape van. Yeah, yes, Like exactly. Carl did in Workaholics, because yeah. Carl drove a van like that and somebody had 
spray painted on it, right van on the side of it. And so he added a G. It's just so funny because they did it in all capital letters and he put a little tiny lowercase G in front of it, but still. (laughs) Carl was wild. But like, it's that kind of van. Like, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what he drove and he used it for that purpose. Like, it's, you know? Yeah. It's funked up. Totally. Yeah. All right. So how is Larry connected to Jessica and Trisha? When the investigators were looking for any info or tips that they could get in the Jessica Roach case, they were told that at one point a witness had seen a work van driving near a cornfield. The time frame fit when they suspected that Jessica had been taken there. And they didn't have much to go on. They didn't have like a license plate, anything. It was just a description of a work van. So it was vague at best. Then in 1994, the police received several calls about a man driving around in a work van in the area talking to young girls. Talking is understatement of the year. Yeah. Let's say harassing and creeping the fuck out of them. On May 29th, 1994, Amy Baker was out rollerblading when she noticed a work van drive past her several times. Good on her for paying attention to this and being aware of it. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, we have a friend who will go on walks in her neighborhood or whatever, and um, she will send me a Marco when she's walking and, like, have, you know, whatever behind her, and she's like, the second time this truck has passed me, take note, like... If I die, I report this van, I report this truck. Like, yes. She was like, you have to pay attention to that kind of stuff. It's, you know. Oh, yes, you do. I definitely do it when I'm driving. I'm like, wow, this guy's been behind me for a really long time. Like, what, what's going on here? Or Yeah, whatever. I have many a time driven somewhere that I'm not even going just to lose somebody. Yeah. And like, of course, 100% of the time, people have not been following me. I just got paranoid. But I mean, you have to, you have to pay attention. You just don't know. Yeah. Um, so every time this van passed her, it got closer and it drove slower. Nope. Nope. Don't nope, do that. Nope. Nope. Um, she saw a car nearby that was driven by someone she knew. So she told them that if they didn't hear from her within 45 minutes to call her parents and have them call the police with a description of the van. So it was a brown and tan work van. And she also gave them the license plate number, which she looked for because the van kept driving past and she remembered it. So that's one thing that like. Hello. People can see you. Right. But I mean, good on her to do it because... 100%. Yeah. yeah. Guess who the van was registered to? Hmm. You'll never guess it. Was it... I'm thinking Larry Hall? How did you know? I know. I know. I know. You're really good at this. Um, So the same day, a 13-year-old girl named Abby and a 15-year-old named Kaylin were riding their bikes when they noticed a brown and tan van following behind them. They cut through an alley and they went to Kaylin's house. Abby called her grandfather, who called police. Abby's parents went out looking for the van. And when they spotted it, the driver shut off his lights when he noticed he was being watched. Shortly after, he tried to drive away, but he got stopped at a red light. And at that point, they pulled up and noted the license plate and called police. This van was also registered to Larry Hall. This is the same day, you guys. Yeah. The following day, May 30th, an officer pulled Larry over after he had passed by a group of young women several times. And like everybody who knows Larry is just like, oh, Larry's just odd. Larry's harmless, but he's just odd. And it's like, this is very, very problematic, disturbing behavior. It's violent behavior. 
Absolutely. Why are you following people? I mean, this is stalking, which is violent, you know, like even he hasn't touched them yet, but it's just, I don't know. You can't do that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's inappropriate at best. It is, it's aggressive. It's, but it it makes people feel very, very, very uncomfortable. Like they should be able to be out and about and do whatever they want to do, like rollerblading or hanging out or walking around, riding their bikes, like leave them alone. Exactly. Yeah. It's just hate him. Um, okay. So they pulled him over because he'd been circling these girls. And while they were searching his van, they noticed some pretty unusual items such as a spray can of starting fluid, a cotton mask, cotton balls, a plastic tarp, some knives, and a length of rope. Kill kit? Yeah. Anyone? Yeah. The, um, they also found newspaper articles about Trisha Reitler and a piece of Indiana Wesleyan University stationery with Reitler's name printed on it. So they arrested Larry Hall and he confessed to killing Trisha Reitler. Authorities requested that Hall take them to the place that he left her body, but after basically leading them out on a wild goose chase, they concluded that he was, quote, just a serial killer wannabe looking for attention. How? I just, I understand that you don't have, like, definitive proof with those items, but he is aggressively stalking young women in your area. He confessed to killing a young woman in the area who he would have come upon because she was walking home in the same way that he is stalking these other young girls. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, rope. Oh my gosh, tarp, come on. Yeah. All right, as if that's not enough. The next day, four girls were walking in a brown and tan van pulled up um, by them asking if they wanted a ride several times. They don't want to ride. The girls got scared and they ran into one of their homes where the girl's mother ran out screaming at the man and he drove away. One of the girls said the man had dark hair and a beard and had already tried to get her in his van two times before that. So her father went out looking for the van and he found it. It was, of course, Larry Hall's van. The police searched a workshop slash barn that Larry used to work on his vehicles and they found some straps that could be used to restrain someone. Um, In July of 1994, two girls, 13 and 10, were playing in their yard when they noticed a work van parked across the street. The van drove over and asked if they knew where a specific street was, and they said no. Also, why the fuck are you going to ask a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old for directions? I have no idea. I mean... Ask a grown-up. Yeah. Like... But that doesn't serve his purpose. He doesn't doesn't give a shit about the directions. Yeah. There's only, like... It just doesn't make sense. No. Like, yeah. Um, so when they said no, he asked if they wanted a ride. And it's like, why, why do they want a ride? They're playing in their yard. Like, they don't need yeah. to get anywhere. Where do they right? need to go to? Yeah. Yeah. So they ran into the house, thank goodness, and told their parents who came out, got the license plate as it drove away, and it was registered to, you guessed it, Larry Hall. I don't, and I don't know if every single one of these instances they're reporting all of this to the police but it's if they are and you're getting this many calls with the same license plate number yeah like 
Come on. October 22nd, 1994, two girls, both 14, uh, left a convenience store and they saw the van and they started to run home, but the van sped up and got closer to them and asked why they were running away and if they wanted a ride. And it turned, they called the police. And of course, it's Larry Hall again. Uh, there have been enough confirmed, like what we're talking about, enough of these stories where they did call the police and it was Larry Hall, right? Like, mm-hmm. And he Why? lives in this area because they they went and searched his work shop or whatever. That's where he works on his vehicles, yeah. which is something he really loved to do. So it's not like, because in some of these cases, he's out of town for a reenactment. So he's committing crimes in areas that he doesn't live. But he's doing this in his hometown. Like, where it's where he lives. Yeah. It's not like we can't find him or figure out who he is. But like, are they talking to him about this? Like, what what can you do about this behavior? Right. Yeah, because technically is that like you haven't committed a crime because you haven't like touched them or it's a very, and and I understand it's a very slippery slope. Like you can't just erase, erase, arrest everybody (laughs) who looks creepy, you know, acts creepy. But that's a lot. It is. And that's definitely crossing a line from like just kind of watching people, which is creepy, but I guess you kind of can't stop them to approaching them, trying to get them in your vehicle, chasing them with your vehicle. Right. That's different. I mean, I don't know. So October 28th, Detective Jeff Whitner, nope, Detective Jeff Whitmer of the Wabash PD got a fax from Gary Miller. So he's an investigator. I love a fax. Oh, yes. I just got to say it. I love a fax. Oh, yeah. I'm upset that my printer does not have the fax feature. I don't know who I'm faxing, but I just love it. I think mine does, but I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who I would fax. Um, Can't fax me. I don't even have a fax. (sighs) So annoying. I know. I know. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So Gary Miller was an investigator with the Vermilion County Sheriff's Office in Illinois. Miller was asking for help regarding two attempted abductions in Georgetown, Illinois, if they knew Larry Hall. So Whitmer calls Miller. They talk all about Larry. And Miller told him that in both of the attempted abductions, the young women gave a description of the tan van and provided a license plate number. Okay, so for calling them attempted abductions, why is he not arrested? I don't know. If an attempted murder is a crime that you can be arrested for, so can't you 
wouldn't it stand a reason? I mean, you can be arrested for attempted abduction, right? I would hope at the, yes, I would hope so. But I feel like if I got anything from this case and the show, which I think that they did a good job, um, it's that wherever, if, if somebody knows Larry, they're like, oh, he's harmless. He's harmless. Mm-hmm. It's not that big, you know, like, don't yeah. worry about it. He could That's do just anything. Larry. That's just Larry. Yeah. yeah. Always. Um, so after they run the license plate number, it returned as being registered to Larry Hall, of course. And Miller also told him about the unsolved murder of Jessica Roach. Whitmer knew Larry, and he asked Miller if there were any military reenactments in the area during the time that Jessica had gone missing. So November 2nd, Whitmer goes to Wabash to talk to Larry Hall. He was accompanied by two investigators who were working on the Trisha Reitler case as well. And they spoke for a while, and Miller noted that Larry, quote, emitted no outward signs of disturbed behavior. He was soft-spoken. He was very quiet in his demeanor. He definitely had that, like, you know, distinctive voice, but they didn't feel like he jumped out as this guy's a serial killer. Um, When Miller told him why he was there about the two girls claiming a man in a van was harassing them, Larry was like, what? No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said he was never in Georgetown. He hadn't been in Illinois for years. They must have mistaken, somehow written down a license plate number incorrectly would just happen to be his license plate number in the same van that he drives. Yeah, an exact description of the exact van that he was driving. And an exact description of him. Yeah. But it wasn't him. What a crazy coincidence. I know, it's weird. On November 15th, 1994, uh, Miller returned to Wabash with an FBI agent also investigating Jessica Roach's murder. As they arrived, Detective Whitmer was going to Larry's house to see if he would come talk to Miller and the FBI agent, and he agreed, which I was like, why? Yeah. Um, So he goes to meet with the investigators. He was read his Miranda rights, and he signed a waiver of those rights. They started to question him about Jessica, and at one point, they showed Larry a picture of her. Now, we know you can't judge somebody's reaction and just be like, okay, well, that's their guilty or innocent. But he literally flinched when, like, they pulled a picture out and he was like, like, I would say he blanched. Oh, okay. All right. And he started to cry. So it's an interesting reaction to have if you've never come into contact with this person, right? 100%. Like, you and I know what happened to her. And it's very heartbreaking to see a picture of her because she's a beautiful young woman whose life should not have been snuffed out, but it doesn't elicit a physical, like, gut reaction in us. Right. You know, it's like, it's just very odd. Um, So he started to recount the events of September 20th, 1993, and he signed a confession admitting to abducting and murdering Jessica Roach which he later recanted. Um, If you had asked Larry Hall his favorite hobbies, he would be like, uh, trimming up my burn sides, working on vehicles, yeah, reenacting, doing war reenactments, and recanting confessions of murder. Yes, yes. Top, if he had one of those, you know, those tote bags that were really popular, it was like your four things. 
be like <laughs> reenactment, burn sides, auto repair, recanting. Well, and I do think somewhere in there it needs to be um, stalking girls. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 So he'd need a five thing bag, I guess. Yeah. On December 21st, 1994, Hall was charged in a one-count indictment for kidnapping Jessica Roach for purposes of sexual gratification and transporting her from Illinois to Indiana. Hall and his attorney filed a motion to have the confession suppressed as evidence, but it was denied. The trial took place in June of 95, and after an eight-day trial, he was found guilty. In August, he was given life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 1996, Hall's attorneys filed a motion for a new trial claiming that Hall had not received a fair trial based off of testimonies from various doctors and experts not being properly considered by the court during the trial. They were granted a new trial. And in August of 97, his second trial began and he was again found guilty. So bold move, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. In December of 1997, he was again given life in prison without the possibility of parole. And if only it ended there, right? I know. But it doesn't. Mm-hmm. After his second conviction and subsequent life sentence, Larry Hall again set out to appeal it. So the authorities and FBI had a fear that this second conviction could be overturned as well. Oh, so wait. They, oh. He'd need a sixth thing bag because you got to have appealing murder convictions there too. So appeal is definitely top. Top hobby. Well, see, and now we're getting really, really expensive because if they charge by the letter, geez, that's going to be an expensive bag. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're going to need it. You, you're going to need an extra long one, like wide or extra long, because you got a lot of words to get on there. Now. now we got like a duffel bag situation going on here. But yeah, he needs a bag for sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. Ugh. So okay, the FBI and the authorities they took an approach that seemed like it was straight out of straight out of a movie. Like I. I could not believe that this had actually happened, yet here we are, so. I know. Like, if you didn't know that this was, and not even just loosely based on an actual case, it's very close to the actual case. Uh, yeah. I mean, based on, like, Jimmy Keene's um, autobiography and interviews with him and stuff like that. So, it's, yeah, it seems like, it seems like the movie came first, you know, or like it was like a loosely based on thing, but like, no, this actually fucking happened. It's crazy. Yeah, 100%. So in 1996, the DEA arrested James, who goes by Jimmy Keen. Jimmy was a star athlete in high school where he grew up in Illinois. He was a star football player and captain of the football team. There was one thing though. So Jimmy didn't come from a rich family like many of his teammates. So to try to keep up with the rich kids at school, he started selling drugs. He started small, but he quickly grew into the guy that people knew to go to when they wanted something. After school, Jimmy wasn't recruited by any schools to play football, so he stuck with dealing drugs. Over time, he grew his empire in Chicago, and at the time of his arrest, he was making over a million dollars a year in the drug game. Then it and he's came, like, like, so young. He's young. Oh, yeah, he's young. Um, 20s, for sure, but mm-hmm. young. So, uh... uh it it all came crashing down. And that was when the DEA and the FBI showed up. Jimmy had been using the money he earned to cover expenses for his father, Big Jim Keen, who is played by Ray Liotta in the movie, or the show. Um, and Big Jim Keen was a decorated police chief in the Chicago area before he retired. 
Keene was advised by the federal prosecutor working the case to plead guilty and not fight it. And he might get a lighter sentence of four to six years. So Jimmy did. But he was not prepared for the sentence that they gave him. They ended up giving him 10 years in prison with absolutely no chance of parole. Oh my gosh, he was pissed. Yes, he was pissed. Because he's like, they they totally dicked me over. Like he told me to take this deal and I would get less time. And then I got 10 years anyway. Right. And who knows how much license they did or they they took for that scene in the show. But it was something like, well, you're, you are probably going to be sentenced to five or six and you, you'll be let out in four in good behavior. And then he gets there and it's mm-hmm. like, nope, 10, no pause, no parole. And yeah. I mean, yeah. according to Jimmy, like interviews that I've seen with him, he says that's exactly what, you know. Yeah. He says that's what happened. Prosecutors will always be like, we did no such thing. We did not. You know, right? Yes, absolutely. There was no, there was no chance of that at all. Yeah, yeah. There was no promises made on our end, or yeah, right. Hey, you guys, um, it's us again. Yay, it's us. We threw we threw you for a loop on this one. <laughs> uh, so we know that a lot of you have been asking, like, WTF? Where are episodes one through forty four? And guess what? Now you can have them. So let's just remember, though, we need you to take a little caution here. We didn't know exactly what we were doing back then. And we started this podcast as just a fun thing to do as sisters. We had no idea that it would grow into this super awesome club with you guys. So what we're saying is the audio wasn't super amazing, but the content is 100% us just being us and talking about some true crime with 90s flair. Okay, so... Here are the details. You'll be able to access our, what we're calling OG episodes in your favorite podcast app through a private and custom RSS feed link. So to grab that, head over to killerqueens.link slash OG and snag episodes one through 44 today. That's killerqueens.link slash OG. Now, Keen broke the law and he went to service and it's like, we, we were not, we're not absolutely, absolutely not being like, well, you know, he was a good guy. He got it. You know, um, it, it's not that big of a deal. Like he absolutely broke the law and he should have gone to jail for it. Not saying anything like that, but yeah. in 1998, about 10 months into a sentence, Beaumont, um, who was the attorney the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. I mean, the prosecutor, yeah. He approached Jimmy with a deal. Um, and Beaumont was actually the prosecutor over Larry Hall's case as well. And he wanted Keene's help. So he asked Keene to transfer from a minimum security facility to the maximum security facility that Hall was in. And this facility housed the criminally insane and violent offenders. He wanted Keene to befriend Hall and get him to confess to the murder of Reitler, including the location of her body. If he could do that, Jimmy would get released early from his sentence. And by this time, Larry had confessed and recanted to killing Trisha Reitler and other women, claiming that the details he gave were from dreams he had. I can't something? even roll my eyes like yeah. hard and high enough. Yeah. Like he's like, <laughs> oh no, those were just dreams. No, I no, that was a dream I had. What kind of dreams? It happens to just match everything that happened in the case, but yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think we can all see right through that one. But so Jimmy said that his first thought was, quote, what happens when I got to deal with these crazy killers and stuff? What if I get shaked? What if I get killed? Am I going to survive this? I mean, 
Valid. Valid. Yeah. So initially, Jimmy told Beaumont no and that he wouldn't do it because it was too dangerous. But shortly after that, though, Jimmy's dad suffered a sudden stroke and his health began failing at a rapid rate. He came to visit Jimmy in a wheelchair. And after seeing his dad, who had always been this big, strong man to him in such a frail condition, he went back to Beaumont and he told him that he would, he would, he would try to get Hall to confess. So as he was being transferred to the new facility, though, Jimmy Keen got cold feet as they were driving up and he tried to back out, but the U.S. Marshals were like, no, man, sorry, it's too late and you have to go through with it. So they did. In the prison, Jimmy had the cover of being convicted of running weapons. His only contact in the prison was a psychiatrist. Outside, he had an FBI contact that he could call as well. Beaumont chose Jimmy because he was very charismatic and really, really good at talking to people. But it took a while for Jimmy and Larry to connect. To earn Larry's trust, Jimmy stood up for him against another inmate. So they're in the TV room, they're watching TV, and one of their favorite shows to watch was America's Most Wanted. Isn't that like, doesn't that seem like weird for people in print? Like you may or may not have already been on this show, but it's your favorite show to watch. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's like a show that helps people get caught. Yeah, I really don't know. I I can't make heads or tails of it, but that's what they wanted to yeah. watch. And so. it wasn't just Larry Hall's favorite show. It was like a favorite in the prison. Like a lot of people really liked watching that show. Yeah. I just thought that was like interesting. Yeah. It's like a bunch of chickens watching a cooking show, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But that's what they wanted to watch. So that's what they were watching until... Until... Until this... Another inmate comes in and he changes the channel. So Keen gets up and he changes it back to America's Most Wanted. Well, it's no- just such a like a, a move, like walking in and being like, all of these people are already watching this show and I'm going to go change it. It is so like um, a dick measuring contest. Like, yeah, nobody is going to nobody is going to buck up to me. Ugh, just rude. So, yeah. yeah. Except so, Jimmy Keen did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Jimmy and this other inmate. They're going back and forth, changing the channel back, changing the channel, changing the channel back, changing the channel. Until the inmate, I guess, got pissed and he approached Jimmy and he tried to punch him, but he missed. Jimmy swung back and he kicked the inmate to the ground. Then he jumped on him and started hitting him until guards separated them. After that incident, Larry started talking to Jimmy more and more. They began to have regular conversations and eventually Jimmy felt comfortable enough to bring up Trisha Reitler. After talking about it for a little bit, Hall admitted to burying Trisha's body, quote, way out in the country, but he never gave a precise location. And Jimmy wasn't sure if that was enough for Beaumont to hold up his end of the bargain. One day in the prison workshop, Jimmy saw that Larry had a map of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And scattered throughout the map were all these little red dots. So he thought that these dots were the locations of the bodies that Larry had buried. Larry also had 10 to 15 wooden falcons um, statues that were about the size of chess pieces. And when he asked him about them, Larry said that the Falcons, quote, watched over the dead. This also tells you, like, this is a very, very detailed map. And he's got all these little, you know, dots all over, which just tells you he knows exactly where the fuck these bodies are. Yeah. Like, to the the centimeter. Yeah. And he just doesn't want to tell. It's just awful. Right. So after this, Jimmy Keen called the FBI contact that he had and told him about the information and that he needed to get out. And he, we well, didn't tell them what it was, but he was like, I've got, I've got the info. I need to get out of here. And he told them yeah, about- because, um, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. 
I was just going to say, they, they made a big damn deal, but like, as soon as you get, you know, as soon as you let us know, you're going to be out in 24 hours or whatever. Don't you worry. And they always, you know, told him like, okay, you've got the psychiatrist you can get in touch with, or you got the FBI agent because the rest of the prison didn't know that he was undercover. They didn't want anybody to blow his cover. So even like the guards and stuff didn't know, but even having that like lifeline, he still didn't really have a lifeline because if you, if you're in a facility like this and you go up to the guard and be like, excuse me, excuse me, I'm actually just here undercover. Okay. Um, so I need to talk to an FBI agent. I need the FBI to get here right now. They're going to be like, yeah, fucking right. Like, they're not going to believe you. No, of course not. And I mean, this is, like we said, a dangerous facility to be in. So I'm sure he did not want to be in there for any longer than he had to be in there. Plus, he's got this dangling over his head where it's like, once you get get the information, you're free to GTFO. And I feel like they should have at least told the warden or somebody in the prison. Like, because even if the psychiatrist knows, how much, how much... Can a psychiatrist go up to somebody and be like, you're letting him out today? Like, they can't do that. So, like, you know, I feel like they should have told somebody else in the prison. I'm not saying tell all the guards, but, like, tell somebody who can override, yeah, a seamless, yeah, situation. But that's not what happened. So, the only thing about him saying, I've got the info, get me out of here. Um, He had to leave all that on an answering machine um, because no one answered. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was like, okay, I put it all in the answering machine. I know that I'm going to get out of here in 24 hours. Right. Cause that's what they told me. So Mm -hmm. he goes back to Larry and he just unloads on him. He had so much disgust and anger built up inside of him from pretending to be Larry's friend for all this time and listening to Larry describe in detail, different versions of the crimes that he committed. So he finally just exploded. And Keen said that he told him, quote, you know, I'm going to be going home tomorrow, Larry you're a crazy killer. And he said, I started calling him everything you can think of. I mean, you have to think about too, like these very intimate conversations that Jimmy is having with Larry Hall, he's having to go along with and pretend like, like it's not he, a big deal. He, yeah, that he hates too. women. Yeah. Just as much as Larry Hall does that. Um, uh, he has to not flinch at the idea of Larry Hall talking about having sex with dead bodies. And I mean, it almost, he, from what I got from the show, and I believe this because we've talked about this with, with suspects being interviewed and interrogated, you cannot flinch or be, look disgusted or like even bat an eye at it. You have to be like, okay, totally normal. But with, okay, with what happened next? Yeah. With Jimmy, I feel like it had to be even more than that. Like, you had to be like, oh my God, like kind of excited about the information that you're getting to make him believe that you actually don't have any ulterior motives for hearing this. You just want to know. Right. And like that you, you know, because I think you want to live it out with him. kind of. Yeah. And in some of the situations, you know, he would be like, well, you know, you had to do what you had to do. Like you have to be like, yeah, I get it. Um, If a girl had the audacity, basically, if a girl had the audacity to not have sex with me when I want to have sex with her, then she deserves to die. Like that's the state of mind that Larry Hall is in. And so Jimmy has to, you know, he's a drug dealer, but he's not a rapist. He's not a violent person, you know, in, in that 
way, like sexually violent. Yeah. And he's got to pretend like, yeah, he's into some, you know, and we're certainly not, you know, two consensual adults, whatever you want to do, you want to do, that's fine. Right. But this is, this is Larry Hall has never had experience having sex with a live person. They've always been dead. And they have a conversation about this and it's disgusting. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's, it's, this is a safe place for us to say that's messed up because that's not only heinous and awful, it's also illegal. Mm-hmm. And how did they become unalive? Larry Hall. Right. He didn't just stumble upon them. Right. Which is not, doesn't make it any, any better. I'm just saying it just adds to it. Like, exactly. Yeah. So they are in a shouting match, um, possibly further than that, you know, kind of a physical altercation at this point, guards intervene. Jimmy was taken to Larry Hall's psychologist who scolded him for upsetting Larry's mental state. She ordered that Jimmy be quote, thrown in the hole. And the chief psychiatrist who was Jimmy's contact in the prison, he was on vacation for two weeks. So when Boma, why and- did he not tell Jimmy this before he left? Fuck if I know, man. He gave it, nobody tells Jimmy like, oh hey, by the way, your contact, the one person here in this prison that can help you, he's going to be gone for two weeks. Yeah. So if you get information, because again, he's thinking I'm going to be out in 24 hours or whatever. So he's trying to remember in his head where all these you know dots are and all that kind of stuff. If he had known that this guy was going to be gone for two weeks. Obviously, this sequence of events wouldn't have happened this way. Like, well, yeah, and I think maybe, maybe he would have um, written some stuff down, let's say, I don't know. Or he would have been like, maybe right this very second, not the right time to confront Larry about this because maybe I should wait until the day before I actually get out. Yeah, and, you know, looking back on it, obviously, he should have not confronted him at all because it's just gonna, you know, jack with stuff. But well, and Jimmy I knows mean, that he's like, I should have yeah. never said anything. But yeah, and he definitely feels super bad about that. But I mean, at the same time, it's like this is a really, really high pressure situation, and this is a person that he despises for the things that he has done mm-hmm. to children. I mean, adults and children, but like it's horrific, and. He, you know, he let the pressure out. It's just, I feel like Beaumont, the psychiatrist, the FBI agent, like fail on their part. If you're going to be gone for two fucking weeks and have no way of contacting, like being contacted by your inside person who is in a dangerous and volatile situation who is, and even if you don't care if he gets hurt or whatever, he's getting information that you need to bring a, a girl's body home to her family. Yeah. Fucking let somebody know. Exactly. Exactly. So when Beaumont got the message, he reached out to the prison, but it was like Keen had disappeared. He would remain in solitary confinement for two weeks until his contact within the prison returned and got him out. So Beaumont has no pull either to be like, hey, I need to get a hold of this inmate. And they're like, too bad. And we don't have to tell you where he is. Apparently. Guys, get a system in place here. Yeah, absolutely. Something, somebody fucked up and this needs to be different. Something needs to change here because look at what the fuck happened here. Can you imagine being Jimmy being like, oh my God, I'm never getting out of here. Exactly. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. 
So by then, Larry Hall knew that Jimmy was only there to get information from him. And reportedly, when the guards were taking him away after their altercations, he asked Jimmy if Beaumont had sent him. And Larry did something with the figures and the map, and they were never recovered. Of course. Jimmy Keene was released from prison after serving 17 months of his sentence. His father was still alive, and Jimmy got to spend five more years with him before he passed away. Jimmy Keene eventually entered uh, the real estate market and found success. And in 2010, he wrote a book about his experience titled In With the Devil. Larry Hall is serving out his sentence of life without the possibility of parole in a facility in North Carolina. He has confessed and later recanted to 39 murders. The FBI uh, suspects that he could have committed up to 50 kidnappings and murders and or murders, which would make him one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. And I think Jimmy genuinely felt a lot of remorse for going in there and not getting the information that he was supposed to get. Like he did not come away with the location of Trisha Reitler's body. Right. It still has never been found. I mean, but, and I can understand him feeling that way and thinking that way. Now, I don't blame him because you can only get what somebody is willing to give you. But Larry mm-hmm. Hall was not going to tell. I don't think he was going to tell it. I mean, the closest person to him being his brother, he didn't, he didn't tell him. Mm-mm. And he, he seemed to have really formed a close bond with Jimmy and seemed to trust him in a lot of ways, but he still didn't. I mean, he, he showed Jimmy the Falcons, but he still took care to hide this map from him. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like he drew this map and then was like, hey, Jimmy, come look at all of this and explained everything to him. Jimmy had to put two and two together because he saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know what more Jimmy could have gotten out of him than what he got. I think that it is amazing that he was able to do what he did because befriending somebody who is so outside of who you are as a person, like, How do you relate to somebody who is a serial killer? You know what I mean? Like, how do you relate to them on like their sexual interests and pleasures when it's them murder, brutally murdering people and then having sex with the bodies? Like, I just, I don't, I could not do it. I I just know that for a fact, I could not do it. No, no. And if the authorities had followed through with the way that they told him that things were going to go, they would have recovered that map in the Falcons. Yeah. Because Larry wouldn't have had time to dispose of it. But instead, he had two weeks mm-hmm. to to send it out. I mean, in the show, they um, they show Gary receiving Gary the map. Gary the dad did. Oh, the dad. You're right. They show him receiving Robert. the... Um, the map and the Falcons and he burns them. We of course don't know that that's what happened to them. We don't know who got them, but he certainly did something with them. He found a way to dispose of them. But if they had, if he had been able to get in contact with the people who told him specifically, you will be able to reach us when you get this information, call us anytime, day or night, this is how you're going to get in touch with us. They would have could have marched right into his cell and recovered that shit. Absolutely. And now Larry is hip to their game. He knows. I can't be, I can't be writing stuff down or carving things and, you know, it's just going to be like, they're looking at him now and he knows that. So yeah. And he, 
Larry, again, you know, like we said, one of Larry's favorite things is appealing his convictions. He held on to the hope of getting out of prison for a really, really long time. So he's doing anything that he can. He knows that if he tells anybody the location of a body and they actually find it, he's never getting out. And he he's going to do everything he can to find the loopholes or whatever to try to, you know, get the best possible outcome for him, forget yeah. anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. I did read that Gary Hall has really, really tried to convince or to help Larry understand that he needs to tell. But I think that, I mean, it, again, I'm not saying that Jimmy was not a criminal, didn't deserve to be in prison for what he did, but I think he did some good stuff in there. And I think that he was very brave. And um, Mm -hmm. I hate that his end of the deal, somebody failed him on that, but he did what he went in there to do. So, yeah. And by failing him, failed failed everything. Trisha Reitler and her family. Yes. Yes. I mean, you can't like, cause there are so many situations that you just can't control and you can't anticipate. He needed to have some way to to reach the people that he needed to reach, like, because anything could have happened. Yeah, and time is such a delicate and important factor in this, and they just fucked it up for everybody, yeah. so. And now he, like, works with, like, what, the FBI um, yeah. helping profile serial yeah. killers? Like, he's really turned it around. He's never gone back into crime. Good for Jimmy, man. I, I don't think that his criminal behavior defines him as a person. I think, I mean, I don't know him personally, but I am impressed with him and I like him. So, yep. Same. But guys, that's the case. That's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think. Of course. Um, let us know if you watched Blackbird. It was really, really well done. We, um, we, we really liked it. We really did. But thank you guys so much for listening and for watching. We love you and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Oh my God, you guys. Do you know what time it is? I do. I do. It's show Shout out time. Shout out time. Um, lovingly known as butcher your name time. Mm-hmm. It's everyone's favorite mm-hmm. time. Everyone's favorite time. So um, we are going to butcher some names of our newest patrons. And not because we're not grateful, because we are illiterate. <laughs> That's why. So um, we love you guys. And if you want your name butchered, uh, join our Patreon at $10 level or higher. You get a bunch of goodies plus this fine section here. We <laughs> want to give a Hey Girl thanks to Kristen. Looks like Beerer, maybe. Maggie Boynton. Emily McChrystal. Rose B. Jessica Calametti. Bridget Berry. Alexandria Bear. Susie Ruiz. Shayla Braley, Brooke M, Rachel Minton, Rebecca Kubinick, Kathleen, Jackie Cheever Trimmel, Jessica Austin, Jan Hayward, Brenda Hawking, Christy Amboyer, Aruz Abasad, and Jenny Sloan. Thank you guys so much. We love you to the moon. Couldn't do this without you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. 
Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.